the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pyon. I'm Sarah Pyon, your host. And today we are going to Oregon. Um, uh, we have Marianne Kersagy, who is the CEO and co-founder of Alibi Cannabis, which is a brand and indoor cultivation facility in Oregon. Her background is in e-commerce, tech, and finance, and I am so excited to have you here today. Marianne, welcome. Thanks for coming to the show. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Super excited to chat with you. Now, my first question is, what was your first cannabis experience, and and how was that for you? Well, um, it's an interesting question, because I might have had an experience when I was a teenager, but I don't really consider that my first experience. My my uncle grew weed in, in the backyard, but nobody talked about it, so... He gave me some, and I am kind of, you know, as a young teenager, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, so um, there was that. But my first experience in modern times was after I was diagnosed with cancer, a friend gave me some RSO and said, hey, this will help you with the side effects of chemo. And I was like, oh, sure, I'll try anything. And um, that began a total shift in my life, a total shift in my outlook towards cannabis and um, made my life better. I love that. I, I, I have a, a little bit of a similar thing. I was I was 13 when I first started experimenting with it. And I always like to tell people that does not mean that I condone the use of cannabis by children. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, but if you're precocious, you're precocious. You do what you do, whether or not, you know, the adults in your life think that's okay. But I I was really blown away. Like, I remember through the years having friends talk about some of the medicinal benefits. And I was like, oh, sure. Okay. You mm-hmm. know. And then when I, when I got sick and I was going through treatment, that was when I started using it medicinally as well. And it, you, you look at it in a whole different way, don't you think? Oh, for sure. You know, it went from being this illicit thing that only the donors use to being something that could actually make your life better, that, um, yeah, in, improved health, improved relationships, improved your mindset. And um, I just, I wish that for everybody to experience that and see if it's right for themselves. Yeah, yeah, because it, it is like, it's one of those things where even though we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, not everybody can tolerate phytocannabinoids. And also, I mean, there are just people who, it's, it, you know, they get worried about euphoric effects, especially for people who have been maintaining a sober lifestyle. It's, it's really all about personal choices. But if you're open to it, it can be a, a wonderful alternative, especially when you're going through treatment, because a lot of the pharmaceuticals that they give us for relief have their own side effects. Oh, for sure. And that's what I found when I was um, going through chemo was, um, you know, and with your cancer experience, you probably have something similar, but I'd have the chemo cocktail, which is a combination of four different, three different things. But then there's side effects for that. So, um, you know, there's steroids, there's, um, and then the steroids make you constipated. And then there's another drug to get you unconstipated. And then there's another drug to help you sleep. And then there's another drug to help you wake up. But those are all managing the side effects. So it turned out that I was consuming more drugs, more pharmaceuticals for the side effects than I was for the cancer. And once I made the choice to transition to using cannabis instead of all those pharmaceuticals, then I was just taking one. 
like, okay, I'm taking one thing for all the side effects and it's working and that's all I need. And my body was happy. Yeah, that's it. That's a, a beautiful thing. I, I remember opening up a drawer in my bathroom when I was going through chemo and there were all these different drugs in there. And I, I just kind of, I, I have a warped sense of humor. I kind of chuckled to myself and I was like, wow, the minute that the C word comes up, they'll give you everything under the sun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, and I always say to people, just, you know, go, go through a critical illness where you have to get a lot of pharmaceuticals. And once you're done with that, you don't want to even touch a pill. I mean, I, of course, I believe in traditional allopathic medicine, but now the only things I take are my allergy pill. And my thyroid medicine, everything else is like, I, I have to really, I have to really need something to take it because after cancer, I'm like, ah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's so true. One of the side effects from the anti-cancer medication that I still take is, um, is it kind of made me go into menopause. And so I have hot flashes and I talked to my oncologist and all she had was pharmaceuticals to to prescribe me so I'm like okay sure I'll try it they made me so sick and I was just like oh, there's got to be something better so you know it's not a cannabis solution although I have heard that it helps but um but I'm using these other plant-based things and I'm like okay these things actually work they're not harmful and they don't make me feel bad yeah that's it I mean that's and I think that's you know for any woman who's going through a perimenopause or menopause to have those tools is incredible because the hormone therapies have their side effects. And I've actually had a few clients and I, and I have to say, I've been starting to feel like some of the, I've been getting a little warm at night now. At my age. <laughs> well, hopefully that's it. It's not full on sweats and having to change the sheets in the middle of the night. No, it's more like getting up in the middle of the night and having to put my hair in a top knot. <laughs> but using some ratios of CBD, I've I've worked with people who've had great success helping kind of with the hot flashes using CBD ratios. That can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. But so where did you where did you make the leap from using it during your treatment to actually getting involved in the industry because you I was looking at your bio and you have a really rich history of being an entrepreneur and doing a lot of work um, just in in the corporate scene you have a lot of excellent experience that transfers really well to this industry but what made you make the leap well it's an interesting story um, I don't know if you experience this and a common thing when people are going through chemo is you talk about having chemo brain where you know, a good portion of your life is spent in a fog because, you know, these medications, chemo is poison and, you know, it's, it's poisoning the cancer and then hopefully the rest of your body is able to keep moving enough so that once the cancer is gone, then you can, you know, get back to healthy living. But so there's this brain fog and um, several, a couple years before I was diagnosed with cancer, I had um, sold my e-commerce company and had pivoted to consulting and helping small businesses thrive in the digital world. And, you know, it was fun and it was interesting, but it wasn't really my life's passion. And you know, just kind of thinking like, oh, if something comes along, I'll be ready to, you know, to try something new. And then cancer and, you know, that took a year of my life. But 
um, when I had just finished chemo, when I was starting radiation, then um, we were looking like, hey, we should do this. It had legalized fairly recently in Oregon. And I thought, hey, you know, I've, I've got this small business experience. I know how to run a business. I know all of that that it takes. So we assembled a team. I started looking for some property. And we bought the property when I was still undergoing treatment for cancer. So it was a very sort of natural um, natural evolution and natural shift because it's like, you know what, I'm using this stuff every day and it's helping me so much. So let's put the money where our mouth is and let's just do it. How did it feel, <laughs> I was called coming out of the, the cannabis closet or the green closet, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to people who you had worked with in, in corporate and your friends and family? I mean, well, of course, it sounds like with your family, since you had family members that cultivated, it might not have been as much of an issue, but to the general public, how did it feel coming out saying what you were doing? Well, um, you know, so I had shared that um, my uncle grew it in the backyard. That was kind of the, like the dirty family secret, and I'm saying that in air quotes, which you can't see, but, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> there was, um, no, but the rest of my family is all very conservative, Christian, very, um, yeah, conservative, and so that was definitely not part of our family culture, and so even after we purchased the property, set up the farm, got everything going, I didn't tell my parents for the longest time because I was worried about being judged and I didn't want it to, you know, destroy any relationships because obviously, you know, your family relationships are super important. But, um, and so it was this weird kind of being in the closet is exactly the right, the right way to talk about it is um, my kids knew and they were slightly embarrassed. You know, they were in high school with teenagers. Mom, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> they get embarrassed by roll. everything, don't they, at that age? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so there was there was that. They're like, Mom, don't tell anybody. I don't want people to be thinking that's what we do. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, then what what was the how it happened that we sort of came out to my parents was my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and at that point. Um, I was kind of ready to tell them anyway, but it was like, okay, there's, why am I letting these, you know, preconceived notions, why am I letting these things get in the way of my dad's health? Mm -hmm. So, um, we're like, you know what, here, this is what we're actually doing out at the farm. We bought this property. Would you like to know what we're doing? And so I bought him some edibles and I said, here, this is, this could help you. And come next time you're in town, let's come and I'll show you the farm. And it was, it was amazing. There were, you know, all these ideas I had in my head of how they would think less of me. They were not true because my parents are awesome. Um, and I realized that not everybody has that situation. But um, I think it's like so many things that you build it up in your head to make it, you know, your imaginings are way more um, dire than they are in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I when I told my mother I was I was working in cannabis, she she just looked at it as, "Oh, Sarah's having a midlife crisis after cancer." <laughs> That's cute. Yep. 
<laughs> and it wasn't until I had been doing it for some time and had had started uh, presenting and and doing more lectures and and getting some write-ups about my work that my mom was like you're, you're really you're really doing this huh Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah. But I remember how I wasn't as nervous about my family because during chemo, a, a couple of times I had really bad reactions to the oxaliplatin and I almost died. Mm. And um, so my mantra was, you know, I didn't almost die twice to lead a shit life. I was going to do my thing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, family, you know, will will learn to deal with it. But I think the biggest challenge for me was the first article that came out when I agreed to do an interview. And I was thinking about my colleagues that I had worked with, you know, in the financial district and stuff. And I was like, what if I decide I don't want to do cannabis l later on down the road? Will I ever be hireable again? I'll have to really think about this. And, and then it was, it was like, no, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do. And even when I met, like my, my grandmother had passed a few years ago. And so we had, you know, occasions, weddings, funerals, you get a lot of family together. And, um, I had family members, cause I have quite a few family members that are very religious. Um, I come from the Midwest, right? We're all Lutheran. <laughs> and, um, one, and one cousin in particular, I was wondering, you know, what she would think, and she just had a lot of questions. She was like, really? Well, I've been feeling this way. And what do you think about this? And what are your thoughts on that? It's so nice to be able to talk to somebody about it. And I was like, wow, people's people's attitudes are changing and they're becoming more open to it. And I love I love seeing when when it makes a difference in someone's life or when they're curious because they've had a good conversation with somebody about their experience. Because I always say conversation is normalization. And it's it's really nice to see people, I mean, not all of us need acceptance from our families, I guess, but, you know, it's really nice to see that, generally speaking, more people are accepting and open, even if it doesn't, isn't a choice that they would make, to having the conversations and being fascinated by the opportunities that are also in the industry. I, mean, I, I got into my work because it made me so... Well, it was totally by accident because I was going back to school for my master's and I just decided to take a job where I didn't have to be anybody's boss because I had been mm -hmm. managing people for 14 plus years. Um, but then just to be able to work in it and thrive and have the conversations and have people ha have it change people's lives. But for other people to be like, oh, well, it's not really for me, but I have a loved one that could benefit from it. Or, right. you know, at, well, you know, it's not my choice, but I'm really happy that you're, you're enjoying your work. And it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But it's also interesting when we look at cannabis. And I think we, we were talking about this before we started recording. Um, there were, there was a lot of female influence in cannabis, especially when we are looking at um, medical programs in cannabis. And now that we're getting into legalization, it seems like there's a, a little bit more of a women have to push a little bit more to be seen and heard now than we did before, which is kind of I find that it's it's reflective of what it was like when I worked in corporate and in IT, where we were really looking at things that were more male dominated, more patriarchal. And I feel like in some ways we've we started 
shifting into old patterns, whereas cannabis, the industry itself, is a unique opportunity because we are so new to change the way that we do business and the way we look at it. And like we were saying earlier, you know, that, that uh, working with men, it's like you ask yourself that question, am I going to assimilate and take on these male traits or can I succeed being exactly who I am? Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation because I think that there's you know, different answers based on different people and different scenarios. But, you know, if you can find a way to be true to yourself um, and still be successful in business, like those two, finding that perfect balance is really key. For me, um, like, you know, I'm, I've been doing, I've been in the corporate world for decades and so have very, you know, have had lots of experiences and what this, owning my own business in the cannabis space has taught me is to be more assertive. And I don't know if that's like, if I was, when I was younger, if I was taught to be more, you know, like you just go along and you just kind of find the, find a way, like find your path without being assertive about what you want. Um, I kind of think that as women, that at least for me, that's, that's what I was always taught is like, here's the rules, you follow this, you get good grades, you do this, you know, so I was very good at following the rules and being successful that way without really stopping to think and figure out, okay, so if I were to strip away all these things that I've been told about how to be successful, what is it that I want to do and how do I feel most comfortable engaging? And, you know, that's a really hard thing because, you know, it's, it's like the nature versus nurture where and which ones influence you and which ones don't. But for me, I found that it's really important to be more assertive in, of course, a kind way, but still step up and say, hey, this is, this is what I need you to do. Or, hey, this is what my business could use. Can you help me with this? Just whatever it is, be, be direct and assertive, but in a gentle and kind way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. It's, it's, I think it's really challenging too. And I noticed when, when I was reading your bio that Alibi is, is a self-funded cannabis company, which is awesome because I think one of the things that a lot of women in the industry have found to be a challenge, although I know there are people, there are good people out there that are really aware of it and trying to make a difference with this, but it can be really hard for women to find funding for their businesses. Mm-hmm. It totally is. I mean, we're fortunate, really fortunate that with my previous e-commerce business, we were able to fund this. Um, my business partner and I, it's all our cash. It's, it's, there's no outside money. So that means we don't have to answer to anybody, which means we get to do what we want to do. We can do it the right way. We need to pivot, do things differently. We can. So I feel really grateful that we have that flexibility. But I also feel a responsibility to help other women who want to start their own business. So I volunteered to mentor um, other small businesses. Um, so I'm going to be starting to do that in a couple months. I'm super excited about that because, you know, we've been, our cannabis business is six and a half years old, which, um, you know, it feels like an eternity. And there's so many things that we've learned and so many things that like, okay, if I were doing this today, here's what I would do. And so I feel a responsibility to, whether it's to provide mentorship or assistance, advice, or investment, you know, I think, I think investing 
in women-owned businesses is really important. You know, people, I've done a lot of work with nonprofits, and um, when you look at nonprofits and how they're going to be supported by the community, um, a way that I really like to think about it is you can get support from your community through time, treasure, or talent. So I feel that the same way in terms of helping other women-owned businesses. So time, I could volunteer my time to help them. My treasure, which would be investment, that's money. Or talent, I was like, hey, I've got this experience. Here's how you should do this. Or here, here's my CPA. Go call them, and they'll get you set up. But thinking about ways to help other people in those, you know, so it doesn't always have to be money. It doesn't always have to be cash, although that's certainly helpful. But there's, there's other ways you can support businesses, too, that are just as important. And when you're doing that, because I, I know for me, I get a lot of people reaching out to me for help with things. And, and one person can only do so much. Mm-hmm. So I find that one of the biggest challenges is being discerning with where yeah. I'm putting my energy. What are what are some things that you've done that have been successful so that you can you can keep the well full for yourself? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is learning how to say no and also learning where it, you know, like figuring out if I'm going to give somebody, say, 10 hours of my time, does it make sense for it to be doing something menial or, you know, helping them build a spreadsheet or whatever? Or is it more valuable to teach them how to think and, like, educate them? It's, you know, it's like the old saying of give a man a fish, he'll eat for the day, give him, teach him how to fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that you, at least for me, I learned just with experience and time is that, um, like me getting into the dirt and helping fix things isn't always what's necessary. Sometimes let's just take a step back and figure out, okay, like where, where is the right point to push? And, you know, there's no, I don't think that there's any like rule book you can follow and say it always has to be this, but just knowing that you can step back and say, okay, I can't give you everything, but here I can give you this. And this is where I think that it's the most valuable. Yeah. And when you're looking at your experience with this, because you came into this with already full of amazing experience and a, and a, and a full skill set, what were some of your biggest challenges? So many, so many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think cannabis, at least on the cultivation side, is so easy to think of it as an easy business. Like, oh, you grow some plants and you harvest them and you take it to market. But in fact, there's so many risks. Um, um, Just on the agriculture, I mean, it still is agriculture. So even though we're indoor and we're uh, climate controlled, there's, you know, equipment could fail. So undoubtedly, you know, your air conditioners are going to go out Friday night at 6 p.m. So um, do you have a contingency plan for that? I mean, and that has happened to us, right? So do you, you know, can you even get a hold of your HVAC people over the weekend? Or are you going to have to suffer through all weekend and hope your plants survive? So there's, there's that. And then what we've learned from that is we design, our building is designed with redundancy in mind so that even if something does fail, there's enough redundancy in the system so that it doesn't ruin a crop, but yet not so much redundancy that we 
way overspent because it was my money we're spending. I'm not going to spend more than I have to. Right. Um, you know, and then uh, we've tried out genetics, but we're not stable. So they seed it out and you lose a whole crop. Um, you know, that was several years ago. And we've since learned from that. So we don't do that anymore. But but still, it's, it's a very real risk. Um, and then there's the risk of the market. Um, we were fortunate to build our farm the first three years we basically grew three different strains and of cultivars. And that, I mean, that was amazing. It was easy. We got good at it. We knew what we we're doing, but the market shifted. And um, Oregon is a very mature market and Oregon's consumers consider themselves connoisseurs and they're always wanting the latest things. They want the new sexy strains. And so we have, we had to mix it up. So, learn from that like now we grow five different cultivars every month boom 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 um but that means our systems have to change and our processes have to change and we just have to adapt so i think the big overarching learning is that you always have to be willing to change and you always have to be willing to adapt and learn and grow and what's true today may not be true tomorrow yeah yeah, that is true. I, here in California, a lot of our businesses have been really challenged by the overtaxation. Mm. Um, it's you know we're we're dealing with. I know my listeners are probably tired of hearing this, and I've heard many people say, "Oh, I don't like this phrase," but it's just so <laughs> apt. It's like we're having major extinction events here, and yeah, you know we have farmers who have been working with cannabis since prior to legalization that are having to leave the industry or we've even, unfortunately, we've had, you know, people who have been so distraught with their businesses that they've actually committed suicide. And it's been oh, horrible. It's been really horrible. And I'm wondering if you're seeing a lot of that anguish and struggle in Oregon as well, or how, how are you doing with taxation and the support of small businesses and farmers? Yeah, Oregon's market is different from California. We're not stifled by the excess of tax, um, but we are stifled by the excess of biomass. So um, our, our wholesale prices of flour are the lowest in the nation. And so, yeah, I mean, different states, different models, but still a very similar end result in the people who have built great farms. I mean, there's some great farms in Oregon. It's, it's like, you know, we're, we look around and our farm, if we were in, say, New Mexico, would be the top in the state. But in Oregon, we're one of the, you know, we're, we're amongst fabulous people. And, but these people can't survive if you, if you have to pay your loans every month, if you have people you have to answer to, if your overhead costs are too high. Um, You'll, you'll go out of business. And this year, I, I believe it's maybe not quite as catastrophic as California, but there are a number of people who aren't going to make it this year. And yeah. while I feel sad for them on a personal level, like I think that's a necessary part of the maturation of this market is you have to be willing to cut costs. You have to be nimble. You have to pivot. And um, if you can't get your costs down low enough, well, I mean, yeah. 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 Well, that's, you know, talking to colleagues about what's going on or, 
even you know nationally it's I, I I go back to my um my background in org psych where we talk about storming norming and reforming mm-hmm. we're going through major changes and I'm really interested to see what happens when we're able to pass legalization federally and we're looking at interstate commerce I think there's a lot of good things that can come with federal legalization but some of the things that alarm me are the fact that we'll be adding more taxation to the mix, which yeah. will we, we'll break some of us in certain states. Um, but also, you know, looking at, I know in one, one form of the MORE Act, what they were saying was that people were on the hook for taxing taxation for all of the product that they had in their stores, like for dispensaries or companies. And mm-hmm. if it, if, there was product that was misplaced or lost if it couldn't be proven beyond a doubt that it wasn't due to the owner of the business or the employees that they would still be on the hook for taxes for that. It's really ridiculous. But on the other hand, if we pass it, we've got the possibility of interstate commerce and also the fact that a a lot of people who aren't in cannabis don't know that we don't have the same tax write offs as other businesses. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. there's so much about that that doesn't seem right. I really wish that um, that the federal oversight for that, like, you know, we don't know what federal legalization is going to look like. Yeah. There are lots of theories and lots of ideas about how that's going to work. Um, but I am not, I really hope that it doesn't end up being a whole other layer of tax and a whole other layer of regulation because, you know, as you know, and as you said, this is like the regulations and the requirements just, just to stay compliant with our state law. It's overwhelming. And, you know, we certainly um, invest in compliance and we're doing everything right to the best of our ability. But it's a very real risk of losing your license. And then where do you go from there? And I think that people don't really realize how difficult it is to stay in the regulated market. Um, you know, that's my commitment and we always will, but there's still a very thriving, more profitable, unregulated market that if we were willing to do that, we could go there and I would actually make money. I mean, we're making money now, but you know, you'd make more money. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, when you're in the regulated market to remain in compliance, it's always a moving target. I know in California Mm -hmm. here, it's like, we'll pass something, but you know, like, like we passed um, our compassion program. So we're allowed to donate free cannabis to low income, chronically or critically ill patients that have medical recommendations. And um, cool. it's really nice. And I, I really hope that that's something that is able to be supported in other states, because as you and I both know, it's not it's not inexpensive to be sick. Mm hmm. And oh um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and since it's not covered by insurance, it's it's really nice to be able to offer this to people. And I, I have a program where I, I serve people in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but you know we uh, we worked so hard to get that passed, and initially the state wanted to have it where people had to purchase the state card from the Department of Public Health, which is expensive. And a Mm -hmm. lot of our patients wouldn't be able to afford that. So we were able to talk them into allowing for doctor's recommendations that were verifiable to be accepted as well. 
And then this year we had um, the DCC, the Department of Cannabis Control, came back and said it has to be the medical card um, from the Department of Public Health because they had, even though we had passed a law in California, they hadn't changed their regulations. And oh, there was, goodness. yeah, and there was a lot of back and forth because I was like, well, guys, I've got people dying that mm-hmm. can't, you know, go in person to get their cards. And it was really interesting, the conversations that were had and who had to get involved for them to be like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, the law supersedes our regulations. So we will allow this. But for a while we were scrambling because one, you know, we're trying to help people, but two, we don't want to lose our license. So we have to maintain compliance. So we were, I was looking at pretty much all but two people in my program weren't going to be able to get their cannabis that month unless some changes happened. Yeah. And it's, I think, you know, I, I don't understand when we're looking at cannabis and cannabis policy, why there tends to be a loss of common sense by our policymakers, mm-hmm. and also a, somewhere along the path, they lose their grasp on the concept of economics when it comes to cannabis. It's <laughs> a very polite way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be nice, but effective. <laughs> yeah, and I I totally agree. I think so. I think that the way I choose to look at that is that there's an opportunity for us to use our voice. Mm-hmm. So um, in Oregon, we have several trade associations. I'm a member of, of both of the, the two largest ones and, you know, regularly speak and advocate and, and, you know, part of the collective to use our voice to influence rule rulemaking, which it's, we're not always successful and sometimes it's super frustrating. Um, but I've been fortunate enough to be on the rules advisory committee for the last several years. And so, you know, we have access to people who are making those decisions. Um, and even though they don't always listen, at least, um, at least I feel like they're trying to, to hear us. Um, anyway, I think that's being generous, but, but, you know, they're making an effort and hopefully over time, if you're kind and polite and, um, you know, that, that will make, make a difference. Um, I think that it also takes more than one voice and more than one way of speaking. So at least here in Oregon, there's an attorney group who is definitely on the more aggressive side. So they sue for everything, which I wouldn't be a part of, but I, I get that that's how they want to use their voice. And I think that that's also necessary because, you know, people, the regulators don't understand like, okay, you just put this company out of business, this mom and pop business, because, you find them for a couple hundred thousand dollars for something that wasn't even their fault. Right. It's like, it's ridiculous. But so I think that having multiple voices and multiple stories and being able to connect really makes a difference. Another example is a regulating body is the OLCC. And um, for some reason, well, I know why, but they have um, contacted me to use our farm as the training spot for new inspectors so of course i'm like well yes of course come on in like we're doing everything right so um actually this afternoon we're having a group of 10 inspectors who have never even seen a cannabis plant who don't even have the first idea how a farm should be set up they're gonna 
come out to our spot, we'll teach them, we'll show them how it's supposed to work. And, you know, I think the amount of goodwill and the amount of education, I'm like, yes, absolutely, let's do it. Still, even when you're doing everything right, it's got to be unnerving to go through yeah. the exercise. Oh, for sure. Um, like, yeah, well-medicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little stressful, but, um, I mean, I know that we're doing everything right. I mean, they could always find something, but the fact that they asked out of, like, I think, a good spot and they recognize that we are a market leader, to me, you know, it's like, okay, even if they find something little, we'll, we'll deal with it. It's nothing, you know super critical. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think that having the good relationships is, is the beginning of normalization and and better policy. I, I, I've i been on the Cannabis Oversight Committee for San Francisco for several years, and for three years I was one of the co-chairs for the Legalization Task Force, which was the body that existed before the Oversight Committee. And to be able to have the conversations and get to know the people who are you know, influencing and creating policy, I think is, is really super important. But I also think, and you'll hear me say this time and time again, you know, when we have people who are, when I still worked in the dispensary, we would have people who would be really angry about not being able to have access to the things that they wanted, or the prices being high, or, I can't get into this product, because it's childproof, but I can't get into it. You know, mm-hmm. and just like a lot of anger saying, oh, it's you, it's it's the companies and really having to let them know that, you know, it's time for them to come out of the cannabis closet. Because the reason that we have some of these policies isn't isn't from the influence from the people who are on these committees or from the companies or for the dispensaries. But it's the fact that a lot of these policymakers have an outdated view of who's consuming these products and how it's affecting them. And so the public has to come out and say, you know, I am a contributing member of society. I use cannabis and I vote. Yeah. I love that. And I think that everybody's voice, like these stories, I think, I think that if we're going to continue to normalize cannabis use, that it's, it's the stories. Not only is it the stories of cancer and you know, whatever other medical ailments you might have, endometriosis or whatever. Like, it's those, but it's also just, hey, I use it every day and I'm still a functioning member of society. Yeah. And just people being willing to to step up and, and like you said before, come out of the green closet. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be aggressive or assertive or it doesn't have to be antagonistic, but just just own it and use your voice however you want to, however it feels appropriate. Yeah, and I think when it isn't aggressive, when it's just, you know, hey, <laughs> I'm your neighbor. I mm-hmm. use I use cannabis. You like me, right? I don't do anything strange. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's 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 a it's an interesting thing. And especially like when I talk to people who and, you know, I, I'm I'm very close to wine country and we my husband and I, we like to wine taste and do things like that. But so I'm not knocking the alcohol industry by any stretch. But the fact that we do have people who say my life is better because I need something to unwind with. And I've decided to choose like a joint or an edible rather than drinking, which makes me feel like crap the next day. 
-hmm. Like there's, there are some really good things that are coming out of this that I think our policymakers need to be aware of that aren't necessarily, like you said, it's, I mean, the patients are what got us where we are today, but now let's talk about everybody else who's benefiting from it and they may not necessarily be critically ill, but it does change the way we live our lives. And there is, there's a health component to it that when we're looking at either recreational or medicinal, it's a substance that creates a reaction in the body. So we have to have conversations about how to create that safe container for experimentation so people figure out what works well for them. But, you know, it's not always going to be the, the life or death thing that people need it for. It's just your general everyday homeostasis. Like, I, you know, sometimes for me, homeostasis is having that nice, dark piece of chocolate. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's having a joint at the end of the day. <laughs> and either way, it's, it's not hurting anybody. Yeah, and for me, the, the hope of all of that is that the more people use it, um, like eventually the regulators and the people who, and the legislators will be us, right? Right. It, um, you know, so I, I think that this, this time of um, people who don't represent us having authority, I think that's changing. So, you know, I'm looking, you know, we, we have a May election here in Oregon, so we have the primaries now. And so I looked at the ballot and like there are some really amazing people who are running for local office and they don't look like the people who are currently in office. So, and you know, they come from a much more open-minded perspective. So at least at the local level, I think it's changing and hopefully at the national level, it will also change. I think that having a lot of these old legislators, like, there really should be term limits. Like these people should not be in office and hold so much power for so many decades. We need people who actually represent us there. And I think that'll, that'll happen. Yeah, I, I think it will too. I, I, I am a, a big proponent of term limits as well, especially because with the atmosphere of our nation now, I feel like some people are making some really bad extreme choices in order to hold keep their grip on their power and it's affecting other people badly yeah totally agreed well (laughs) let's lighten it up what are you excited about (laughs) (laughs) yeah enough of that (laughs) what am i excited about um i am actually really excited about several different things so you know we talked before about the industry being really challenging and having to be flexible and pivot mm-hmm. so we are coming out we are collaborating with a, a gummy manufacturer here in Oregon and we have some gummies coming out and um, those are going to be out for dab day and we're in final negotiation stages with a company in Massachusetts to get our um, branding on the shelves in Massachusetts oh congratulations we, yeah I'm really excited about it so um, it's one of these things that you know is a relatively small farm you know how do we how do we continue to grow and expand and connect with people and um last year we purchased an nft which was really cool um it's a beautiful piece of art and we have leveraged that nft for our brand 
And it's, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's this really beautiful, sexy woman smoking a joint, bright red background. It's really eye-catching and like totally not like traditional cannabis packaging at all. It's like bright and like in your face, glorious and beautiful. And we found that people in Oregon are just loving it. And um, it's just, it's a way of affirming that cannabis can make your life better throughout, you know, by just making it beautiful. And like the world is so heavy, like we were just talking, but also with, you know, COVID and this and that, it's like everything is just so hard. And our brand is about, let's try to make things a little bit easier. Even if it's just for a moment, just, just chill for just a second. And so that's what we're, we're taking our message um, to other states. And I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. And I noticed too, that you, you've gotten some shout outs about your genetics as well that you've been cultivating. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have a great team of, um, people in Oregon who, who breed for us. Um, and so we get first dibs on their choice cuts. And so we're, we're using that to, you know, like we talked before, Oregon's a super competitive market and, you can't just grow, you know, whatever it is, uh, cookies or whatever. You can't, you can't just grow that and survive. So we have some amazing genetics that are really unusual and really cool. And um, we've got white truffles coming out, apples and bananas. Um, yeah, really exciting things. That's awesome. So for people who want to follow you online, uh, where should they go? So our brand is uh, Alibi. Our website is alibicannabis.com. You can find us on Instagram, Alibi Cannabis. Those are all both pretty easy to find. And you can sign up for your newsletter, and we let people know when we have fresh drops, um, new products, all of that stuff. We're pretty good about trying to stay connected with our customer. And then if anybody's interested in connecting with me personally, I'm also pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, just Google or just search on LinkedIn, Marianne Kersagy or Marianne at Alibi. And I'm happy to connect, specifically happy to connect with other women entrepreneurs. Since I have, you know, all this experience that we talked about, I love helping other people and just connecting and trying to make, you know, collaboration is the name of the game and, and trying to improve everybody. You know, like they say, rising tides lift all ships. So that's, that's kind of our mantra. That's awesome. Thank you for being such a, a strong, supportive colleague because we, we in this crazy world that we're in where there's a lot of competition and what I like to refer to as the cage match for relevancy. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. You know, I, I just always appreciate all the lovely people that are just smart and innovative and supportive connecting with them and and so i'm i'm just so glad that we were able to to meet and talk today for sure well thank you it has been a pleasure sarah and this is um yeah it's a lot of fun i really appreciate hearing your story too oh yeah well i could talk all day but i try not to because it's supposed to be about connecting with others (laughs) but you know it's it's just it's just always so wonderful to meet like-minded folks and being passionate about the work. So thank you so much for, for hanging out with me today. And for those of you listening out there, remember planted is twice a month 
And if you want to follow us on social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook. On IG and Twitter, we are Planted with Sarah. And if you want to follow me on IG, I'm Sarah Meacher Pion. You'll get uh, cannabis education, pictures of my cat and things that I'm cooking. And of course, for you deadheads out there, you'll see some pictures of my husband, Jeff, who is a member further. I don't often mention that, but you know, <laughs> cannabis and the dead kind of goes together. Um, so thank you for joining us today. And it is a crazy world out there. So be good to one another. Stay safe. Until we meet again, stay curious. Bye, everybody. Bye.